Luke chapter 1 is where we are this morning as we continue our series, The Apostles' Creed. So if you want to stick a finger, that's where we're going to be first, but you also can turn over to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to spend some time there as well this morning in both of these texts. But I'll begin with Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Read along with me out of your own Bibles. Not out loud, though, just me reading out loud. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed as a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was also called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's turn over in your Bibles. If you have those open, it will be on the screen as well. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Picking up there in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God may it stand forever. So great and awesome passages, and they speak this morning of where we are in the Apostles' Creed, the theme there, which we've come to the, the phrase, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. One of the most controversial and problematic doctrinal phrases in Christianity. Well, not so much problematic if you think about it too much, if you believe in miracles, but it is problematic in the sense that this is one of the areas that has been most attacked within Christianity. What is Jesus doing here? Was he really born of a virgin? <laughs> it seems odd, doesn't it? And why does it matter that he was born of a virgin and conceived by the Holy Spirit? For years, this doctrine of the virgin birth has come under significant attack, even by some within the church itself. In the early part of the 20th century, what was known as liberal Christianity, this isn't a political word, this is a word that talks about its relationship to the, the traditional historic values of the church and beliefs of the church, was that liberal Christianity began to rise. And the main proponent of liberal Christianity was a pastor in New York City named Harry Emerson Fosdick, which is such a great name. 
He sounds like a bad dude, doesn't he? He was an influential 20th century pastor. And here's what he proclaimed. He said, I do not believe in the virgin birth. This is what he says to his church. I I do not believe in the virgin birth, and I hope that none of you do either. This is consistent with many of the people who have been prominent in uh, Christian faith and those who have believed in some sort of God out there but have been part of the founding of our country. You know, John Adams, in a letter from Thomas Jefferson, read this one day. Jefferson said this, The day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus, by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin, will be classified with the fable of Minerva and the brain of Jupiter. What's Jefferson saying? He's saying it's hogwash. This is a story of myth. And while this particular doctrinal statement has certainly come under significant attack, there are those, even those who don't believe in the virgin birth, who when they hear about this, they at least understand that if this is true, it changes everything. It is of significant importance. Larry King, and actually when he was being interviewed this time, instead of the other way around, Larry King, when asked if he, in an interview, if he could interview anybody else from all of history, he said, Jesus Christ... And what would you like to ask him, the interviewer asked King. And King replied, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. Even Larry King understands that this is significant. And if it's true, it's of great value. If it's not true, then it's of great value because it means we don't hold anything really. It makes it silly everything else we believe in. So let's try to understand the virgin birth and the conception of the Holy Spirit this morning. Very generic outline for you this morning to hold on to, but I'll try to give you some sub-points to give you a hat rack, to give you some categories for your brain. Point one is going to be the understanding of this theology. Second, we're going to see the importance of the theology. And third, we're going to see the applications of this theology this morning. The theology of the Incarnation, the fact that God himself became man, was, was put in the womb of a virgin and birthed from her and lived in this world. It's an easy doctrine to say. It's a very hard one to wrap your mind around, isn't it? What is the Apostles' Creed stating when we say what we believe and stating that what we believe in the teaching of Scripture and the concession and birth of Jesus? What is it saying we believe? Well, two things there. Two things. Taking the literal wording of the Apostles' Creed. First, it says that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity came into be in the womb of Mary by the power and direct activity of the Holy Spirit, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Verse 34 of Luke 1, Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High, this is an important word, will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The coming of the Holy Spirit will come in power is in the overshadowing the covering of the Holy Spirit over the womb of Mary. This overshadowing is a powerful image if you, if you understand scriptural history. It is there in Genesis 1 where the Spirit comes and hovers over the world when it is formless and void. And what happens? Things start to take shape. The creation is born. In Psalm 139, the psalmist talks about there how God formed him while he was still in the womb and how God covered him and overshadowed him while he was in the womb of his mother. Mary will be covered by the power of God protectively. Psalm 17, 8, the psalmist once again talks about this in this way. He says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. This is the protective power of God. Mary will be covered with the shadow of God's wings. And in so doing, she will become pregnant with the Son of God. It's pretty incredible. But the more immediate picture 
that is communicated to us in the, in the Gospels of this word shadowing or covering is actually found later on in Luke, in Luke 9, at the transfiguration, where a cloud descends, where Jesus comes up with a couple of his disciples, and he meets together with Moses and Elijah, and a cloud descends, and a voice speaks out of that cloud. And what is the cloud imagery in all of Scripture? What, is it, what does it mean? What does it symbolize? It symbolizes the presence and power of God. The mountain was covered with the presence of power of God. Mary is going to be overshadowed with the presence and power of God. To go beyond too much of the biblical language is to get yourself in trouble. But that much we know. That's what's going to happen here. The Holy Spirit will come upon her just as the cloud fell upon the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And there signified God's presence with who? With man. God comes to overshadow a woman. And suddenly God is present. He is incarnate. He is Emmanuel, God with us. In the flesh. The very power and presence of God will form in the womb of Mary and the child that she will bring forth. So that's the first thing it says. The second, it says this it is saying that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, was conceived in the womb of Mary, not by natural means. Now, how, how are most children brought about? It wasn't that way. It says that she was a virgin, she did not know a man. God could have brought it about that way. Some people have theological reasons for thinking that it couldn't be brought about that way. In other words, though, God is choosing to violate. What he's doing here is to violate the natural order of things in order to bring about his will. This is, in the most generic terminology, a miracle. When God violates the natural order and process of things and intervenes in a divine way, that is a miracle. When he violates the natural order of things, and here what we see, what normally the way nature brings about procreation and progeny, that does not happen here. Now, the virginal conception and birth of Jesus is one of the most attacked counts in all of Scripture. Because, as I said earlier, if they can attack this, it dismantles the whole thing. The other one that is vehemently denied is Jesus' resurrection. Because these are the two clear miracles that we absolutely need. God's intervention into this world. Now, often early Christians and modern Christians as well are treated like dim-witted fools for believing in the virgin birth and believing in such a miracle. The thought is this. Then they think about early Christians, that they would believe such a, th- such a thing. They say, oh, those poor little early uneducated Christians. They didn't know better that virgins don't have babies. This is just one of those myths that people back then had the tendency to believe is a real truth. We, of course, are above that now. That's the general sentiment. But that is cultural elitism. And it displays a particular worldview. Do you think that people back in Mary's day didn't understand that virgins don't have babies? C.S. Lewis points this out to a friend in one particular account around Christmas time one year. This is before Lewis was a believer. And, and he's with another skeptical professor, another atheist professor who doesn't believe in Christianity and the, in the miracles and the, the things that we sing about and believe as Christians. And, and while they're in, in Lewis's study one day, they have the window open, and it's about Christmas time, and there's a group of carolers, carolers down the lawn, and they're singing a song about the virgin birth. And the skeptical friend of, of, of Lewis's shook his head knowingly. He said, aren't you glad that we know better than they? And Lewis said this, well, pardon me? I'm not sure I understand what you're speaking of. And the, his friend said, well, aren't you glad that we know that virgins don't have babies? C.S. Lewis paused for a moment and said, don't you think they knew that too? Isn't that exactly the point? The whole point of the virgin birth and why it's in the scriptural narrative is because it doesn't happen every day. This is something profound and incredible. 
that God would come enter into humanity and do so through this miracle. That's the whole point. It wasn't as if people were running around having virgin births all the time. And Mary shows this in the text. Is Mary's response to the fact that the angel says to her that she's going to be pregnant, was it, oh, oh, well, that happens. No, she, what her response was, excuse me, come again? They didn't have categories for a virgin birth either. It was a miracle to them just as it is a miracle to us. It wasn't that they were dim-witted fools. They thought this was incredibly possible, impossible as well. And no, no Jewish person, particularly Mary, but no Jewish person would have expected God himself to become incarnate, to take on flesh. They had no category for this, for this thing. So what we see is that God has worked. He has divinely ordained. He has interrupted natural processes. And that is what we call a miracle. That's what the virgin conception is and the virgin birth is. That's a miracle. Now, real quickly, just almost as an aside, let me just say a few quick things that often have distracted people on this particular topic of the virgin birth. Two issues that Scripture does not say about the virgin birth. One is the immaculate conception is not true. Mary was a sinner. We have no evidence in the Scriptures that Mary did not sin, that she was not born with an original sin nature. In fact, we see a couple of accounts in the life of Jesus where she doesn't behave entirely uprightly. Second... Semper Virgo is the Latin term of this. Is Mary did not remain a perpetual virgin. Mary had other children, and she had them through natural means. The Bible never teaches that Mary was a virgin for the entirety of her life. Now, going back to a couple weeks ago about enjoying the creation, often this thought here is, again, this thought that things such as sexuality and the enjoyment of sexuality within the right confines that God has given us is a still a dirty thing. We can thank St. Augustine for that, I think, because St. Augustine had a difficult in his life before he became a Christian, before he influenced much of Catholic theology. He had great issues in in struggling with lust and sexuality, and that pervaded even his Christian life. He had a negative view of sexuality, and that pervaded the church, and it pervaded still today. But we see nothing terrible and disgusting. God calls it good and enjoyable, and we should see it as such. And, in fact, we see scriptural evidence that Joseph and Mary knew each other in the natural way. Matthew one twenty five, when it says this, that Joseph knew, not, knew her not until she had given birth to a son. This implies that there was a time when abstinence between Mary and Joseph ceased. So just want to get those two things out of the way. There you go. So there's your understanding of the theology. I hope you're not any more confused than when we began. Second, let's talk about the importance of it. The importance of this theology of the virgin conception and birth. I want to give you four headings here, four points in talking about why this is so important. We'll walk through them, try to move through them, particularly the first two rather quickly. First is this, is it's foundationally important for Christianity. As I was talking about it where I began, Scripture and Christianity itself falls apart if this is not true. You know why? Because we cannot believe the Gospels if it's not true. Because there is no other accounting, no other reading of the Gospels other than to say that the Gospels of the New Testament claim that Jesus, came, that God's Son came into this world through a virgin birth. And therefore, if that is a lie, then, we, then everything else in the Scriptures comes under question. In particular, everything else, every other account of Jesus' life comes under question. If the Scriptures err here, then we should not trust the claims of Scripture. We should not trust the stories about the cross. We should not trust the claims of the resurrection. And as Paul says, if there is no resurrection, then this is pointless, and we should all eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. 
It is foundationally important that this is true. This is the first, one of the first significant steps in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if this one falls apart, all the other steps go away. This is true for the birth. It's a foundational belief. Now, if it is true, though, if it is true, then it means it should radically change your life. Second importance of this theology is it's historically important. A miraculous conception in birth... In the storyline of Scripture and redemptive history, what we consistently see at various important points is that there is a miraculous or a, a, a difficult birth that comes and proceeds right before God begins to do something awesome to bring about one of his, fulfill one of his promises. So Abraham, they have no children. They're very, very old. They are barren. They're beyond the years of, of childbearing. And what happens? God intervenes. And this time through natural processes, but, but Sarah gives birth to Isaac. Samson, same thing. A mother who is barren gives birth to a child. Samuel, Hannah, the barren mother, cries out to God. And what does God do? He brings about a child for her. John the Baptist in the same way. What we see is what we see throughout the scripture is that barren women suddenly are made not barren when the gospel comes to bear, when God's promises are brought to the fulfillment. Now, this is the greater fulfillment, though. See, those were barren women, but it was still brought about through natural processes of a husband and a wife, knowing one another, but this time is brought through a virgin birth. But the pattern is consistent. And what we see is it also it fulfills the prophecy of the Old Testament. So Isaiah 7.14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The virgin, the virgin birth shows to all the people of Israel during, who were living during that time, if this is true, that God is on the move and God's promises are about to be fulfilled. And since this is a more significant and more incredible miracle than all those other accounts of barren women having children, this is the great fulfillment. This is a greater fulfillment. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. This is when God comes amongst us. All right, so it's foundationally important. It's historically, in terms of redemptive historically, important. Third... I'm going to give you a big word here, a 25-cent word. It's Christologically important. And here we're going to spend a little more, little more of our time. Christologically important. If you want to know how to spell that, C-H-R-I-S-T-O. Logically. Christo. Logically. The teaching of the scriptures and the teaching of Christian doctrine is this, is that Jesus was full deity. He, had the, he was the essence of God, had all the attributes of God. Jesus was also full humanity. He was found in human form, as it says in Philippians 2, which we read this morning. He had two distinct natures, and this is a difficult and challenging doctrine. It is a mystery in many ways about how these two natures uh, interact with one another. But we see that there's two natures within Jesus, this one person. The fullness of deity and the fullness of humanity. And these two natures are inseparable from one another, but they do not mix. His deity does not override his humanity. and His humanity does not bring down or spoil his deity. He continues to be one person with two natures. This is what we call in theological terms the hypostatic union of the natures of Christ Jesus. Christians have shed blood. Understand this. Christians have shed blood to hold to this truth. Let me walk through each of them, each side of this, this, these two natures of Christ. First is that he was fully God in his holiness and his sinlessness, because we see both of these natures in this account in both Luke 1 and also in Philippians 2. See, in Luke 1, we see his holiness and his sinlessness, verse 31, reading through verse 33. 
The angel says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, Deity. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. What we see here is the claim that Jesus, the one who has come to be put in the, the womb of Mary by the conception of the Holy Spirit, by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, is God himself. He is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of the Most High. And as deity, he is sinless. As one who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, he is sinless. He is perfect. Verse 35 of Luke 1. The angel said to her, or answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Because it is the work of the, of the Most High, because it's the work of the Holy Spirit, this child is considered holy. He is perfect. He is sinless. And this is radically and incredibly important that Christ be God and Christ be sinless because we needed a sinless Redeemer because none of us are. The story of Scripture is that man fell, that we are sinful people, and there is none among us who could save us because we were all sinful people. And therefore, God himself had to come and be part of us, to take on humanity, to live perfectly on our behalf. And the New Testament goes out of its way to proclaim or pronounce that Jesus is not only the deity, the divine one, but he is also a sinless one who has come to redeem his people from their sins. If Jesus is all man and he is no God, then there is no way for him to redeem us. Let's transition then. That's fully God. Let's also look at the second part of his nature, or the second nature within Jesus, and that is his fully, he's fully man. He did not give up his deity when he took on humanity, but he did take on humanity. He was fully man. We'll look over at Philippians 2 to help us through this. Jesus is the son of Mary. He takes on flesh, is conceived in her womb, carries her physical features, and is born from her. This is what we call Jesus' incarnation. You know, the root word there in incarnation is carne. You eat carne, don't you? Carne is meat. It is flesh. Some of you don't eat meat. And so when you eat chili, you get chili con carne, right? Meat, flesh is what carne is. The incarnation is Jesus taking on flesh. He took on humanity. And this, if, we, if we're actually thinking for very long on this at all, we realize that this is an utterly scandalous thing. You realize that the early church, the early, in the early church, within its walls, there was almost no issues with the fact that, that of calling Jesus God. Where the issues entirely came about in heresies was in calling Jesus human. Because it was a scandalous thing. Frederick Buechner, who's a beautiful author and writer and pastor, says this, The incarnation is a kind of vast joke, whereby the creator of the ends of the earth comes among us in diapers. Until we too have taken the idea of the God-man seriously enough to be scandalized by it, we have not taken it as seriously as it demands to be taken. Have you thought about the incarnation, about how radical and unbelievable and unfathomable it is that God would become human? In order to take it seriously, we have to understand what he did in the incarnation. So let's look for just a second at Philippians 2. It says in Philippians 2, in the ESV, it said he emptied himself. In some translations it said he made himself nothing. They're going, the translators are going too far there. They're trying to do the interpretation for you to get rid of confusion. But in so doing, they have dumbed down the word. What was going on, the Greek word underneath empty is the word kinos, which means to pour out or empty. Jesus came and he poured himself out. 
And what is the key see, thing to see in Philippians 2 is that Jesus pours himself out, the second person of the Trinity, not by getting rid of himself, but by adding something to himself. Look at Philippians 2, verse 7. This is really key. But he emptied himself. Okay? So he's emptying himself. But how does he empty himself? Next phrase. By taking the form of a servant. He empties himself by adding something to himself. Being born in the likeness of men. Now how does this emptying play out? In the adding humanity. Well, we see a number of places that Jesus' humanity on display. We see in Luke 2 that when Jesus' family takes him to uh, the, te- the, te- the temple for our various celebrations, that it, they leave him and he's found teaching and, 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 and interacting and dialoguing with the scribes and teachers of the day. And they're amazed by how much he knew the law. That is not his deity engaging there. That is Jesus and his humanity learning the law. They assume, we assume and reread that he knew the law because he is God. But it says that Jesus grew in grace and wisdom. Deity doesn't grow in grace and wisdom. Humanity does. You see his humanity there. You also can see in the fact that Jesus doesn't know everything. In Mark 13, 32, Jesus says, I don't know the time in which the Father has allotted for my return. He doesn't know the day or the hour of the Son's coming. He takes on human nature. He relinquishes the rightful use or expression or manifestation of his divine attributes, including the divine attribute of omniscience. It's clothed in his humanity. We see his humanity all over the scriptures, all over the gospels. You know, Jesus needed to sleep. He was a weak man. He needed to eat. He longed for food. And his body, very important, his body was able to die. Because we see that on the cross. He had weaknesses. He had cravings. He had longings because of his physical flesh. But he is still divine. Let me help you understand this maybe with an illustration as to how this works in the adding on. Imagine you are someone who is looking into buying a Maserati. Or perhaps you're not looking into buying a Maserati because you don't have that much money. But you have a friend who's going to let you test drive a Maserati. And you go into the store and they give you the keys of the Maserati. And it's just rained that day. And you're like, I'm going to have some real fun and see what this Maserati can do. And so you take the Maserati and you pop that thing into gear. And you go out and you go find the biggest mud hole you can absolutely find. And you just drive through it. And you're just skidding all over the place. And it is so much fun. And then you take the Maserati back to your friend. And you show up. And he goes, what have you done? You've destroyed the Maserati. And you say, no, I haven't. No, I haven't. All the essential attributes of the Maserati are still here. It's just clothed in mud. You just can't see them. I'm sure philosophically that illustration breaks down. (laughs) Just like things about the Trinity breaks down, but I'm going to give it to you anyways. It is utterly amazing that God would stoop down. It's utterly amazing that he would take on flesh in this way. The incarnation is unfathomable, but it's utterly necessary. It's utterly necessary because we needed a representative. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 talks about this. He talks about Jesus as the high priest. He said this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is the perfect high priest, and he is the mediator between God and man because he has fully experienced deity, and he has fully experienced humanity. The only, the perfect mediator has to understand both parties. We have a perfect mediator who has entered in, who has been the new representative of all humanity. Adam was our first representative, and he fell, and he messed up, and we all fell with him. But we've been given a new representative in humanity. 
the King of kings and the Lord of lords, God himself who has become man. So why are we so interested in Jesus being fully God and fully man? I know this seems like a crusty, dusty doctrine, but this is of enormous importance. If Jesus was all God and not man, then he has no point of contact with us. He could not represent God, but he could not represent, could not represent us either. He could represent God, but he couldn't rep- represent us. If he's fully God and not fully man. If Jesus, though, on the other end, if Jesus is all man and no God, then there's no way for him to redeem us. Because then he would share our need for our redemption. If he was all man and no God, then he would share our need for redemption. He would be, if he was under Adam in the covenant with Adam, then he would be fallen with us. All right, that's Christology. Fourthly, it's soteriologically important. I'm just throwing out... 25 and 50 cent words at you this this morning. Soteriologically important. We'll just get it all out of the way in this series so we can be done with it. Soterios. Salvation. S-O-T-E-R-I-O. Logically. Soterio. This has to do with our salvation. We get in the conception of Jesus, though, a beautiful picture of our salvation. It is an apt picture. The birth of Christ in which the initiative and powerful act are all of God, is an apt apt picture of God's saving grace in us. Does Mary go to God? No. God comes to Mary. Who births new life into Mary? Does Mary bring it about? Does man, by his own power, bring it about? No. It's entirely by the work and power of God. God takes the entire initiative act, and Mary is utterly passive here. Her job is merely to submit to what God is doing and has done. John 1, 13 talks about this, picking up in verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Your salvation is not of your own will, it is of God's first and foremost. It involves your submission, but it is after his gracious work. So what we see here is a beautiful picture and the birth and the conception of Christ who inter- intervenes and engages with his lost humanity, a picture of his salvation grace. All right. How do we apply this? What's the takeaway for your own life? Well, we get it, I think, in both Luke 1 and we see it also in Philippians 2. And that is this, this character quality, what this should engender in you and grow in you as you read about the incarnation, as you read about the virgin conception and the birth, is it should grow in you humility. Humility takes on two forms or two examples within Luke 1 and Philippians 2. The first is this. In humility, how it comes about, first it starts with submission. It begins or starts with submission. Mary submits. Understand, in their salvation, it is by, it is by the will of God, and by, by the prevenient grace of God, but you are called to submit. So there is a responsive activity that you are involved in. Submission. Verse 38 of Luke 1, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let it be. Let it be. The Beatles understood this, right? Paul McCartney said this is about his mother, but everybody knows who reads the song Let It Be that it's actually about the mother of Jesus since he takes it directly from the passage in verse 1 of that song, it says, When I find myself in times of, pro- of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me speaking words of wisdom. And what are those words of wisdom? Let it be. Brothers and sisters, wisdom is submitting to the work of God in your life. 
When he says, I'm coming in presence and power, that you yield to his superior authority and his superior will and do his bidding. That's the first step towards humility is to submit to God in that way. Would you submit, would you submit to this difficult teaching even? We are all submitting ourselves <coughs> to some paradigm, to some perspective. It could be a naturalist perspective that says, I believe absolutely that there is nothing outside of this naturalist box. You're submitting yourself to that. Would you submit yourself to, to this? To the thought that there is a God outside of this natural world who intervened, who entered in, to engage, to redeem you? And he now calls to your life. The second step, though, in moving towards humility is it's fulfilled and comes about and comes to its fruition when you empty yourself. This is what we see in Philippians 2. What does Jesus do? He gets incarnate. He empties himself. Do you know what the point of the virgin birth is? The point of the virgin birth is that God engages with you. God came into Mary right into the very reproductive system of a real human being. And he became concrete in this world. God got entangled in your humanity in the mess of your life and the brokenness of this world. He got utterly engaged in it. That is a beautiful picture of what God is doing in the gospel. And that is a call to us as Christians to be incarnational Christians. To follow the example of Jesus and do this. To get engaged. Which means you have to move into the places where there's brokenness. You cannot move out to the back 40 and stay out there for the rest of your life. If you're going to move out there, then you better invite people to go with you. Because what we have in the, in the example of Jesus Christ in the incarnation is he enters in directly into people's lives. And he invests himself in people's lives. This is the missional call of what we see of this aspect of the gospel. You want to get humble? You want to be hum, uh, known as a humble person? You've got to get engaged in the brokenness of this world. Because in so doing, you know what you do? You stop thinking about yourself and you start thinking about other people. Humility is a shy virtue, and the second you start thinking about it, you don't have it anymore. So you've got to get engaged. You've got to become an incarnational Christian. And how do you do that? You've got to be willing to take on weakness, to set aside the things that give you glory. How? You see, this is how Jesus does it, isn't it? He enters in by adding on. He empties himself. He empties himself as glory. Jesus, the way he's able to do this is because he knew real glory. And he actually knew inherently and ultimately his glory, his relationship with the Father could not be ultimately stripped from him. He had a glory that could, be not take, could not be taken away from him. And therefore, he set his glory aside for a brief period of time to take on the form of a servant. To take on a humble status. But there is an interesting word play going on in Philippians 2. It's under the, around this word kinos, where we see that Jesus empties himself of glory. That word empty is kinos. Empties himself of glory because he knew his ultimate glory could not be threatened. What we also see there is that kinos undergirds the word conceit. Philippians 2, verses 3, it says this Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility can count others more significant than yourselves. Conceit. The Greek word under that, underneath that is kenos doxian. It is made up of two words. Kenos means empty, doxian means glory. 
the reason why you're a conceited person who's unwilling to lay your life down for other people is because you don't have any glory. You're empty of glory. And therefore, what we do as human beings is we seek to pile on, we grab anything and everything. You be my glory. My children, they've got to be my glory. My work life, that's got to be my glory. What I do at church, that's got to be my glory. Because we are glory-empty people. And we're trying to attach glory to ourselves. Something that will get something for me. The call of glory, the call to lay down to empty ourselves, it will take something from you. And most likely, and most often, it will take the very things that give you glory in this world. And you've got to lay them aside to take on weakness. So too often, Christians, middle-class American Christians, you have a lot of discretionary income. And yes, even discretionary time, even if you don't think so. You're not thinking about where the food's going to come from. You're not grinding the wheat out in the fields. You have discretionary time, but often what we do is we don't empty ourselves. We function and do ministry out of our discretionary time. We give our discretionary income. We do not sacrifice. We do not empty ourselves. Can I call you this year as you look to the summer and towards next ministry year at the King's Chapel or out in this community that you would find areas to lay more of yourself down, to come to the end of yourself, to not so control your world that you need to say... If I'm going to be a good parent, I can't be do this over here. Maybe, maybe your glory, the thing that you look to, which is maybe your parenting, that I'm such a great parent, I can do this, and I run such an organized household. Maybe that glory goes away when you so invest yourself that your, your house becomes messy once in a while. Would you lay your life down that way? How do we get the strength of that? And this is where we end. Where do we get the strength to pour out our glories, to lay them all aside, to take on weakness? We must see that like Christ, our glory cannot be threatened. Your glory, your ultimate glory can't be threatened. Let me ask this. Jesus came to pour himself out, to pour out his glory. Where did that glory go? This is the beautiful truth of the gospel. It went into you. He poured out his spirit. The spirit, now what? On the day of Pentecost, the spirit hovers over God's people in power and presence, and he brings new life, and the glory of the Lord has overshadowed you and invaded your life. And that can never be taken away. The more you root yourself into that truth, the fact that God has become incarnate through his spirit in your own heart, in your own life, you say, God has given glory to me, me, this broken, this broken person, and yet he would seek to dwell inside of me. That's unbelievable, and that's unfathomable. And you get that about how much he cherishes you and loves you and longs to make you his. You can lay all the other glories aside. So will you be so gloryful that you can give up glory during this life? Let's pray. Gracious God, this is a a difficult teaching. It's difficult for us to grasp onto. God, I pray that you'd make it real, though, in us, that some of the things said today would reverberate in our brains and our hearts. God, most of all, maybe we'd be astounded, shocked, perhaps be so vulnerable to be scandalized by the Incarnation. In such a way that we're moved by the fact that you not, only, you not only came to earth and lived for 33 years here, but you came to dwell in our hearts.
our broken, sinful, dirty hearts. May that incarnation, may that conception blow us away. May it humble us. May it put an end to any sense that we have that this is of our doing. That we lay aside anything else that we're looking for to give us glory and honor. We're looking simply to the fact that you would see fit to indwell us. That's amazing. May we be blown away by it this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.